Welcome to Shattered, the podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss mental illness. It's by a sufferer, for sufferers, and for the people that are looking to understand what it's like to live with mental illness. Welcome back to a very special series in the Shattered Podcast world. We're doing a series on the issues that veterans face. And I'm very, very pleased to be able to introduce my father, Kevin Brosnan. Dad, how are you? Mate, I'm good, thank you. Thank you for inviting me for the interview. I thought I was going to call you Kevin. I just couldn't do it. So, so Dad, you are a Vietnam veteran. You served in Phuc Thuy province. Yes. You were based out of Vung Tau because you were with which the, unit? The Australian Logistics Support Unit. We were a engineering unit. We were the Royal Australian Electrical Mechanical Engineers attached to an engineer corps. Now, you were there in a very hairy time. You were there during the Tet Offensive. We were. Uh, we, we listened every day to the American Armed Forces Radio. You've probably heard of that through the Good Morning Vietnam. <laughs> Um, the tent offensive occupied all our listening time where we could. Yes, it was a time that I believe I, as the term goes, I grew up. Mm. Now you didn't uh, come back with any symptoms that you know of. You didn't get any Agent Orange. You didn't get any PTSD, as far as you're aware. No, I didn't. We, it was stressful. I. I admire the infantry soldier a great deal. Thankfully, I didn't have his job. I did my job. We were three three k from the beach. Uh, Sunday afternoons off. No, I didn't. I knew of the stress of the war. I never encountered any injuries, any circumstances that had a lasting effect on me. Yeah. Now let's fast forward because I guess. Uh, the subject of, uh, of our interview is more Michael. Uh, you, your son Michael, has served in the Australian Armed Forces. He's deployed four times, maybe five. Not a hundred percent sure there. Uh, but we want to talk about his deployments to um, the Middle East specifically. We can't say which country. First off, when your son said, Dad, I'm going to join the Army, because you were a, a lifer in the Army, how did you feel about that? I had such a great career, and I do mean this, an enjoyable career. I enjoyed the challenges. Uh, I changed mid-career and undertook a adult trade course, and that left me the following 16 years as a tradesman, a most enjoyable way well-paid way to remain in the army. When Mike said he wanted to join the army, my immediate thought was perhaps he'd pursue a trade, but he didn't. He was happy to go in as a driver. Um, I was quite pleased that he wanted to not follow in my footsteps, but he did so well initially that I I said to him, you've made a good choice Mm. and don't follow my footsteps. Path, follow your own. He became a driving instructor very early. Uh, in time, he got bored with the driving and then found out about the adult trade training and did the same thing. And the same result as I, he then enjoyed his service more. Uh, it didn't make the deployments easier, but it certainly, he, he ended up staying in, I think, 15 years. 
So it's quite a legacy. You don't hear of too many father and son Raimi kind of guys, do you? No, I've no other I do I know of. Okay, so the time comes, Mikey did a couple of deployments. One was to Timor, the other to the Solomon Islands. And I don't think I was nervous about him going on those. Uh, he was in a support role. What were your thoughts when your son told you that he was first deploying overseas? I It was the same reaction my mother had towards me that she didn't want a son in a, a zone where people were dying. But with knowing of what I went through, you're not living in constant danger. Mm. So I just hoped he was in similar circumstances as a driver. I knew he had to leave a base and go to other bases. And in between those two bases, heaven knows what he would have encountered. I was anxious each time I heard um, on the news that a serviceman had been killed, hoping like crazy it wasn't him. His mother took it harder than I did, but no, I was not extremely comfortable, but I knew he had chosen that career and I accepted that. Now, after those deployments, he let the whole family know that he was headed to the Middle East. Now, this was a very different animal as far as deployments go. Uh, Was it the same for you knowing it or knowing that he was going into a potentially much more violent arena that we knew a lot more about? because Americans were there, it was on the news all the time. Whereas when they're in Timor and the Solomons, it's, you'd be lucky to get a mention on the news. But when he went to the Middle East, what were your feelings there? Look, it was a slightly higher intensity or concern as opposed to the East Timor tour of duty. But I knew the equipment he was travelling in, in-country. Best, the very best we could produce. And I... Whilst you're in base, there is a chance of danger coming from mortar or whatever. But in between travelling in the base, he was travelling in the safest mode of transport that I could hope for. I was even more concerned whenever I heard of a young serviceman dying. But I just had to hope that it wasn't my son. Again, I accepted fully that it was his choice to be there. And uh, I just went along with that choice. Where I want to go from here is because we we really can't talk a lot about what Mike did in country. Um, I just the Department of Defense has guidelines, and I haven't read those in completely, so I'm not going to go into that too much. But I want to talk about when your son came home. When you came home from Vietnam, Mum had been in the army, her father had been in the army. And you had decided to stay in the army. Is that correct? That is correct. I had a great job and I felt no need to simply become a civilian again uh, to get another job. I enjoyed the guys I worked with. My wife, Mike's mum, enjoyed the postings every few years within the army. I was in the greatest job, I believe, the man could have. And why change for the sake of... uh, I wasn't up to the point where it was no longer fulfilling me as a, a, a man or a tradesman or a soldier. I was happy to stay in. Yeah. Um, when Mike came home, he stayed in the, the service, but each well, – I had one one-year uh, deployment. Mike had four eight-month deployments. 
on his last deployment, he rang me from the in-country to say, this is the last, Dad. I I miss my family more, and I was, he was thinking of coming home and taking his discharge. Again, I, I agreed with that. He fulfilled his... As he fulfilled his work, his work fulfilled him. But the point of being so separated from the family was getting to him. If I could return to when you got out of the military, uh, when you came back from Vietnam, sorry, the famous stories: the servicemen were spat at at the airports. Um, some of those stories obviously were exaggerated by the perception of the time. How did you feel as a returning veteran? I know that you were somewhat insulated because you were still part of the Army family, but how did you feel about your service when you came back from Vietnam? All of my life, I remember watching old black and white film of returning battalions with ticker tape parades, uh, and then our first of our battalions coming back from Vietnam and much to everybody's horror, it was in South Australia, the woman protester ran up and threw red paint over the commanding officer. I was outraged at that. I thought the treatment, it was not our intention to simply suddenly say, we're going to Vietnam, the government sent us, throw paint on the government buildings but not on the servicemen. I came home and the only thing I noticed, all I wanted to see was my fiance. Didn't care who was at the airport, who wasn't. I did notice that they flew us in after hours and told immediately you get home, remove your uniform and don't wear it in public until you're coming back on leave. I thought, well, I wasn't ashamed of my uniform. I wasn't ashamed of my service in Vietnam, but I did as I was told. I did pick up on going to parties with my fiancé in the first few weeks after coming back the talk on how we shouldn't be there. But I never felt ostracised. I never felt... I didn't, I had felt that I did, had done nothing wrong. Mm. I had served my country. I was proud to serve my country. I just didn't tell anybody. Now, in later years, uh, the Vietnam veterans have gotten the, uh, I guess, the honour that they deserved. I know you were a little bit different. I know it took you a long time to truly accept that your service was as a, air quotes, veteran because you felt like an infantry soldier was a veteran. You were just there as a support soldier. How hard was that for you? Look, it, it, it wasn't hard, Mark. I I remained in the Army, and so every, every time we go for a new promotion, we get sent on course uh, with other servicemen from other corps, infantry and well, I began to respect what they did in Vietnam. I didn't know that they respected what I did in Vietnam. Mm. They've made me first realise I was as a veteran and it's title to the respect of a veteran that they had because I was in a position where I could have been killed, remote mortar in major, major cities, Grenades were thrown in the back of Land Rovers. They said, Kev, you could have been killed in an instant. We were in danger every time we went out. But you said you were in danger from the unknown. I began to learn that, yes, I was a veteran. I didn't do their job, but I did my job. And I tried, I, I pride myself, I did my job very well. 
And I began to accept the fact that I was a veteran. Mm. I could never compare myself to tunnel rats or infantry, but only, not compare, but to absolutely admire what they did. You know, I, I can't say they've, they've earned the title of veteran and I didn't. Well, I, you know, I would have said that, but uh, they, it, it took them to make me realise I'm a veteran. I did a job different to theirs, but they regard my my time as earning me the, the title of veteran. Famously, the Returned Servicemen's League was not a very welcoming place for a Vietnam veteran. <laughs> I don't want to go into the politics of all that. So when we talk about that, and we know now that the, the veterans at the RSL are basically Vietnam veterans, what is... Do you think the general perception of the young fellas that are coming through now, the young veterans, men and women, how do Vietnam veterans, in your experience, feel about those young people? As you say, it was true, Mark. We were introduced to to the RSL in Newcastle. My mate's dad took us. He was so proud to introduce his son as a veteran and me as his mate. And he, the way we were treated father who was a world war ii veteran i thought he was going to take somebody out he was disgusted at the jokes and they were throwing at us and i got angry but i made up my mind if they're going to be like that well they can keep their rsl and later years 10 so years down the line i went to my first bit anzac day march not for me but for the World War One veterans, there were only six left in Canberra. Mm. I felt ashamed then that I'd missed all those Anzac days because um, of the attitude of the RSL, and I took it to heart. A few years after that, we had young men returning from Afghanistan and other places, and in America, a group of um, Vietnam veterans showed up at the airport. I was so impressed with that. To I've welcome back soldiers returning from the Middle East. simply stand there at the gate and welcome them back. Yeah. That so impressed me. I said, I, I, don't need, I didn't need that to happen with me. But I, that was my approach from then on. These young guys, not the ticket tape parade, but um, something is from a former veteran to say, well done. That's the attitude I... And that's when Vietnam veterans started taking over the positions of RSLs and accorded the young veterans that welcome back, mate. As a father and a Vietnam veteran, when your son first reached out to you, I know that he reached out to you when he was in country. He told you that he'd had enough. What was your feelings when you started to hear that PTSD might be in the equation? For a long time... I'd heard of veterans returning from World War One, World War Two. I saw it in my own father-in-law um, hitting the drink a bit too much. Oh, we all drank. We all came back from the war um, mild to heavy drinkers. I never had a problem, so I never was a heavy drinker. When I saw my father-in-law's behaviour, it took a while to realise that he was going through something that I hadn't gone through. I didn't understand it because he never shared with us. So when my own son came back and started displaying similar behaviour, I began to take notice and I took a 
I particularly called him more often just to talk to him. And I was fortunate because I had started talking to him on his last deployment. He called me from in-country and telling me things that he'd never told me in the past, his feelings, and it was great to share him with him. And he was always grateful that uh, I sat and listened to him. And I think I began to realise, I thought I was a reasonably good listener, he needed somebody to talk to. When he was later diagnosed with PTSD, that meant no more to me than he was diagnosed with a, you know, possibly cancer. It's, it's not a disease that's repugnant. I felt terrible in that because I'd never suffered any circumstances in Vietnam that could have induced that condition. I felt inadequate that I couldn't help him understand PTSD. I'd since joined a, a group of veterans sponsored by the Vietnam Vets Affairs with Heart Health Program. That's to get us older veterans fit so we don't claim so much on the veteran, Department of Veterans Affairs with medical expenses. Every single one of them, um, as 12 of us, eight of them were infantry, every single one of them had PTSD. I didn't know. I'd never sat around talking to them about it. And their conditions began in some cases 20 years after the war. Mm. One went into a morgue to identify an uncle that died. Next day, he was a gibbering wreck. And as I finally to, was able to admit that he'd, the dead body was enough to bring back the horrors of the war in Vietnam. He's never worked again. His PTSD invalided him. So much to the point that he's on a permanent, permanent disabilities allowance or something. I, that helped me, those eight Vietnam veterans helped me to understand this the circumstances that can induce the condition of PTSD and it can be as, a, as, as small as a seeing something that you'd see in normal life and think, well, that's sad, or road accident injury. I saw a bad motorcycle accident when I was 14. It didn't horrify me. It was awful, but I didn't suffer, didn't see anything in, in at Vietnam that would induced me to have horrors and nightmares and so Mike talks about when he drives now if he sees a black patch on the road uh, it can induce anxiety for him so when you're talking about just those simple innocuous things can bring on those symptoms so let's imagine at the moment we've got a young man or woman they've come back from service in uh, the Middle East or anywhere that Australians are serving and they may be suffering. What would your advice to that, to that person be if you were able to speak to them today? But again, this was shown to me by these eight veterans. I was never much for unit reunions and such. I've been to a couple, but think that I, I didn't need these guys to talk to. I had friends from my work, ex-servicemen who worked in the same company as I had. I had a, a family, loved having a young family, travelling, caravanning. I didn't need external support so much as these guys did. They got it through their associations and eventually when they started going back to the RSL, the RSL woke up and started helping them and the, the DVA helped them. You can't do it on your own. None of you are that strong that you can handle the condition on your own. Case in point, Victoria Cross winner, Payne from Vietnam. I read his story twice. Brilliant. He went through it, bottom of the pit, got to the bottom of the pit. His support came in the form of his family and a few friends. 
and they led him through it. He, this was a long journey too, by the way, something like 20-something, 30 years. He came out of it. Now, he spends his whole time helping young veterans. What I'm trying to get at is he didn't do it on his own. I don't care if it's, it's a, a union reunion or you know some mates who have settled close to you or even go to the RSL. And sit and listen, have a coffee, try and meet other veterans your age. You cannot do it on your own. Mike has tended to think that he is better on his own. That's the one thing I disagree with. He's tried to go to a couple of sessions, but one, and I say this angrily, one stupid Vietnam veteran accused him of not being entitled to PTSD. You didn't do enough horrific infantry stuff to warrant it. I'm ashamed of that veteran. Every And he was a warrant ex-warrant officer. We've learnt in the Australian Army to care for our subordinates, even after their discharge. Care for your men is everything. This fool scoffed my son's service. And I'm ashamed to say that man doesn't deserve the title of a Vietnam veteran. So Mike took that to heart, and he's never been back to a an ex or a veteran's talk like that, self-help talk. He's done so much damage, and uh, for that, I I just hope he hears this one day and wakes up to himself. He needs support of others every step of the way, and he'll come out of it. I know he's a strong young man. He will come out of it, but he needs support to do that. It's interesting, isn't it, when we compare our experiences because you just naturally, you compared yourself to the to the diggers that were tunnel rats and, and infantry patrolmen in Vietnam. I know that Mike does it the same. I know that I do it the same. If I'm in a place where people are talking about PTSD, obviously mine is not from military service, but you compare, you hear a story and you, you it's always worse. The, you might have been abused, but then there's a guy that was chronically abused. You might have been blown up in the jungle and there's a guy that lost two legs in the jungle. There's always something worse that we're able to negate our pain by. But what I want to ask you is, do you look at Mike particularly, a returned serviceman, when you look at his symptoms, do you think he is weak? <laughs> quite, the op- quite the opposite. He has come back with a severe injury. It's not a leg blown off, an arm blown off, or a bullet through the chest. But all the same, he's come back with an injury. How he's carried himself is, is strength. Is it's not weakness, and again, it was these wonderful men that I met through the DBA. They've carried on their lives, and some of their lives are really off, went off the rails. I think what strength that you guys have shown to get to this far in your lives and still be living, breathing, sane. This inner strength that you guys have got, and I just see that in my son. He's not weak. He's he's um, he was shy growing up. He's introverted like I was growing up, but he's, ex- he's excelled as a soldier, he's excelled as a man, he's excelled as a dad, as a husband. That's not weak. That's strength. I want to thank Warren Officer Class 2, Kevin Brosnan, <laughs> my father, for coming in and chatting so openly and honestly, Vietnam veterans, speaking to the young veterans out there. We support you, we pray for you, we care for you, 
and we wish nothing but good things for you. You are heroes. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for listening to Shattered, the podcast. Special thanks to executive producer Torian Lau and also to the band Adelaide for allowing me to use their song. Check them out, Adelaide Music, into your search engine and you'll find out all about them. I'll catch you next time on Shattered, the podcast. Thank you.